welcome to the Identity Theft Podcast, the podcast about how we all grew up to be people we never thought we'd meet. I am one of your hosts, Sabrina. I am River. I use he, him pronouns. And I use she, them pronouns. All right, beautiful. How's your week been overall? It's been all right. I did not wake up hungover this morning, which was very nice. Yeah, well, I woke up a little hungover. I woke up, like, groggy, and I fell... Okay, so when I got home last night, Mm -hmm. um, my boyfriend was coming over, and I said, the back door's unlocked. I texted them, and they said come open your back door. You locked it and <laughs> you locked me out. So I was like undressed and I just went and opened up the back door naked and there was like a big window on my back door. So they saw me coming and they were just like, dude, like, <laughs> and I was like, I am drunk. <laughs> crazy, crazy night. I went home. I walked all the way home pretty much. Oh, so did I. Because as soon as I uh, saw, as soon as I got to the road where the bus was, I saw it pass by. And I'm like, well, I don't want to stand still and do nothing. So by the time I got to my the street where my house is, the other bus passed me. And I was like, what fun. Yeah. Well, it's better. I like walking better than just standing there waiting for the bus. Like, yeah. especially kind of, I was on, we were on commercial drive. So I was like, Ugh. we saw the bus passing and I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And I checked my phone and it said it was going to take 17 minutes for the bus to come and 13 minutes to walk to the train. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was like, happen. okay. So I went and bought some chocolate because it was a sad day. And I bought some Gatorade because tomorrow was going to be a hungover day. Mm-hmm. And I was correct. And something interesting that happened to me this morning um, was that I finally listened to my voice recordings that I've been making for the past six months. Mm-hmm. Um, because as of day after tomorrow, it's going to be six months on testosterone for me. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You're I'm welcome. very happy. And holy shit, dude, my voice has changed like crazy crazy oh my god i didn't realize it because i haven't done a recording in like a month Mm -hmm. and i was like what the fuck it's like it's such a big difference Mm -hmm. and now you'll have this podcast to immortalize it for all eternity (laughs) congratulations (laughs) yeah well that's gonna be good but i know that like anyway it's fine it's It's fine fine. um okay so today's topic um because this is identity theft podcast and we are talking about identity our sort of gambit for this one is that we're going to be talking about career opportunities or job opportunities or life opportunities that kind of missed us by so there is like a parallel version of you out there somewhere in the future that did do this did pursue this but instead we're here at emily Carr, (laughs) right and it's kind of interesting i've i would consider myself fairly anti-capitalist fairly socialist but it's so it's interesting to me that so much of our identity as adults and as people is what we do as a job. Oh, absolutely. It's like the second or third question people ask you whenever they're meeting you for the first time. Oh, so what do you do? I think that's kind of more of an American thing, actually. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, I think it really is a bit more of an American thing because when my my parents taught me to never ask that of people. Oh, really? Yeah, because they think it's crazy, crazy rude. Um, yeah, no, that's how I grew up is you never, ever ask, like you'll volunteer what you do, Mm -hmm. but because, um, I think it's also because we grew up where where a lot of people were really poor or Mm -hmm. jobless, Mm -hmm. um, asking what you do can really put people on the spot. Mm -hmm. So it's a very American capitalist sort of society thing to ask like, Oh, what do you do? And perhaps it's more of a boomer thing, but as I was raised by boomers, it's something that's definitely affected me to a point. So I just like want to start by saying, it's a weird thing to be so wrapped up in as far as identity goes. Cause like the way you pay the rent probably shouldn't also dictate how you feel about yourself, but and how people treat you in society. But that's yeah, just how but, like that's the world we're living in. So we figured 
we might as well talk about it. And I feel like everyone here at Emily Carr is like a little bit kind of anti-capitalist in that aspect because mm-hmm. especially people who are like in the kind of more fine arts department, I would argue. I feel like mm-hmm. if you're in design, it's a little bit more career oriented. And if you're in animation, so. um, then or some of the more media stuff like animation and film I think are also quite career oriented because mm-hmm. they're very big industries especially here in Vancouver True. Um, but if you're we're in illustration and that's still kind of more businessy but if you're a painter <laughs> then you're very anti-capitalist inherently sure. I think you would have to be yeah and another thing about art school as opposed to other universities is that a lot of your art is wrapped up in your identity. For instance, we've had to write several artist statements for our upcoming professional practices class. And it's, you're taught to market yourself based on your personality and based on who you are as a person, not just your technical skill and ability, but also you have to find some way to appeal as a brand, as a human to people who want to pay you. That's just such an interesting thing to think about because like, depending on what stage of my life, Um, my mom likes to talk to me about identity sometimes and something she said to me recently is that every person has like a core phrase or value that they base their life around. Mm -hmm. Mine is communication, which is Mm -hmm. great because I'm right here. Communication and conversation and storytelling are sort of the things that I, and connection more Mm -hmm. like those ones are sort of what I base my life around, I'd, I'd say, and all other aspects of my personality, like my creativity, my loyalty, all of the things like that base into connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and something else that she said to me, oh, goodness, what was it? it While you're very, thinking, I'll just say, yeah. you, you shared this with me several days ago. Yeah. And it made a lot of sense to me. And since you've said it, I've tried to be I've tried to figure out what my core aspect or value or phrase would be. And I don't know what it would be, but I did realize that a lot of my art and a lot of what I'm interested in outside of art focuses a lot on storytelling and communication. Mm -hmm. But also it focuses on mysticism or lost past such as like the Arthurian legends and fairy tales and things like that, where once upon a time people may have understood them to be literal, but nowadays we dismiss them. So I think that's definitely a core tenant of what I make my art about, but I don't, I don't know what my guiding principle would be quite yet. That's something I'm definitely thinking on. Yeah. And deep introspective time, deep introspective time. Um, I did remember what she said. Well, she said to me is, um, sometimes is if you're introducing yourself, think about like the order in which you categorize the different parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like if you say, hi, my name is River Kiro. I'm 21 years old. I go to art school. I'm transgender and bisexual. Um, and that's like the tier of how I introduce myself. Interesting. So that sort of says a lot about who you are and your own values you based on after that, I'd say I'm from Brit- I grew up in British Columbia. I like science fiction and that I work at an art store. And then as you introduce yourself, like those are the rungs of your different parts of your life. So it's just interesting to think about how, like I always lead with my age. Mm-hmm. I'm 21 years old mm-hmm. and I've done that. And when I was younger, I used to say I'm a teenager. Mm-hmm. And that was how, that was the main thing about how I fixed it in my personality. In retrospect, I realized I never introduced myself as a teenage girl. I said, I'm a teenager. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 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 That's, that's galaxy brain of me. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing what we know without consciously realizing we know it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess if I were to introduce myself, I'd say, hi, I'm Sabrina. I'm going to art school. I'm studying illustration. I'm originally from the States. 
and I would probably stop there if I'm introducing myself to a complete stranger. If I were to keep going for the benefit of a friend or somebody I care about, I would probably go on to say I am fairly agnostic because I was raised so militantly to be Christian. And then I would probably say something along the lines of I am very vaguely genderqueer, trying to figure that one out. It's been a wild ride. And very mm -hmm. bisexual. So that's probably how I would order myself as well. It's interesting that, like, it, to me, the things that I started with, they're things that are temporary. I started mm -hmm. with, I'm 21 and I go to art school. Mm -hmm. Those are the two things that are absolutely going to change in my future. Right. And then after that, I say, I work in an art store. I'm trans and I'm bisexual and I'm from British Columbia. Mm -hmm. I don't say that I'm from Canada as much. I say I'm from BC. I'm a mm -hmm. lot more proud of being from BC than I am of being Canada. <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm in no way attached to the fact that I'm from America, but I feel like it's kind of a disclaimer. It's something that I should tell people. Right. Because I can, I can be sneak Canadian. <laughs> Your people, Canadian passing. Exactly. <laughs> and people will assume that I'm Canadian. So often I feel like it's something that I have to disclose just to be polite. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's because your accent is pretty ambiguous. You don't have a really strong, right. thick Southern accent yeah. or anything like that. No, yeah. I grew up in the Midwest, so Michigan, Indiana area, Indiana specifically, which is known to have a very neutral accent, as opposed to Minnesota, which sounds a little bit more Canadian, a little weirder, because they had uh, more <laughs> Scandinavian people, and not really East Coast either. That's not East Coast accent. No, but that's not. Really, not... not really looking for my coffee, and not southern so it's very much and you ain't really southern type I, I ain't really no no i ain't real southern either no so i'm yeah so midwestern is definitely known for its ambiguous clear accent that's mm -hmm. just neutral american and then i moved to seattle and there seattle doesn't particularly have a strong accent either no they have a couple of things that they say some more verbal tags that i've picked up on like, oh, like what? they say a and oh. yeah 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 like a, like if you're talking to somebody in conversation they're like yeah you know yeah 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 they do that a lot more. In in the Midwest, you have a lot more, um, oh, let me squeeze right on by you. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. I, I say think, all. I think yeah, 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 is a, is a Canadian, is a BC thing as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's something that's definitely, definitely Canadian passing. I'm passing in a lot of ways. I, <laughs> and I'll take it, I guess. Okay. So, yeah. um since you brought this topic of uh, missed career opportunities, mm. um, what would you say, what do you want to kick us off with? Well, uh, let's start off with, I never, growing up, I didn't know that being an artist was an option. I'm still not sure if it is, but we'll <laughs> figure that out later. And I guess the story I'd like to start off with is that as a teenager, middle school, high school, my dad would often <clears throat> encourage me to do a lot of math classes, which I hated and science stem and Ugh. he is disgusting disgusting what the hell he um he's an electrical engineer by his bachelor's degree he was trained to be uh an electrical engineer and so he would like theoretically he could design all the wiring for a plate like a building but not an electrician he wouldn't necessarily have the mechanical know-how to install it mm -hmm. per se um but now, over the course of his career, he uh, does software engineering. So he does cloud computing. If anyone 
knows anything about that basically uh website hosting okay. so he manages a lot of servers and security for those servers so that people can rent out server space and run their companies online that's pretty tight yeah it's pretty tight but he would often assume that i wanted to do the same thing he not maliciously but he'd be like oh you need to take more math classes and i'd be like why and he would <laughs> he would so you can do what i do exactly and i never wanted to do that ever oh, because man. i hate math so very viciously so i'd say that so that was more like a desperately avoided career opportunity yes and my parents would often say like you're a very smart kid. You can do whatever you want. And I'd be like, really? So my and my dad, me too. Yeah. And my dad would and say, it, tur- it, it turned, they, when I grew up, they finally realized I can't do math. Like <laughs> that's been one of the best things that I've gotten out of my relationship with my parents in the last couple of years is be, is being like the only math I can do is conversions mm-hmm. and money. Mm-hmm. And that's all I want to do. That's all you need to do. I can't even divide longhand anymore. My I could probably, I might be able to do that. But the thing is, my dad would be like, if you tried harder in math classes, you'd be good at it. And I'd be like, but it's painful and I don't want to. So why would I dedicate like three hours a night to doing math homework when, when you I hate can, it? When I hate it, when I can do it in 45 minutes and get a C and move on. Like why, why work so hard on something I absolutely loathe? Um, so yeah, my parents would often say, if you tried hard enough, you could do anything you wanted. And I would often say, but why would I try so hard if it's so viciously viciously painful and at one point i asked my so my mom my dad was like yeah you could be a software engineer you've you've got the brain for it and i'm like but do i have the temperament no (laughs) and i asked my mom at one point like she was talking to my little brother and he had to do a career day activity and she's like yeah you could be a doctor i was like could i be a doctor and she's like yeah you could Hmm. and i've like believed her but like why so people would have died if i was a doctor (laughs) (laughs) i i could have done all the rope memorization but like 12 years of school is not fuck no absolutely not not at gunpoint no so yeah mostly it's about the things that my parents said i could do and they didn't say yeah there are like a lot of parallel paths in my life Mm -hmm. um the earliest one that i can think of the earliest one that could have changed my life in an irreversible way was that my cousin was into acting she was the main she was the main lead in the 19 in like the late 90s early thousands version of a wrinkle in time that was filmed here in vancouver and she was she played meg Mm -hmm. and they needed someone to play meg when she was like four and i was like four so i so for one afternoon i was on a movie set and they were very nice to me and my mom was there freaking out the whole time because she was just like, this is kind of a little bit fucked up, but like, whatever, we're broke. And I made $800 in like four hours because the director talked to me. And uh, so that meant I wasn't an extra. I was a main cast member. Mm-hmm. And I do have an IMBD. Tragically, it's under my dead name. Uh-huh. Hopefully that'll get fixed Fuck. someday when I change my name legally, probably after this Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, oof. Oof. But... Afterwards, my parents went. Um, my parents ended up talking to the director, and the director was like, "Hey, your kid's kind of cute. Like, did you want to try and get him into more roles?" And my mom kind of was like, 
no. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, actually, no, not at all. The cool thing is they actually saved that eight hundred bucks to me and gave it to me when I turned eighteen. Nice. Which is pretty yeah. Pretty rad of them considering how broke we were in like two thousand and two. Yeah. Um so that's the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Are there any others for you? Or because I have any a couple. Big ones? Oh man. No, I didn't really have any like no no one in authority ever came down out of the sky and said, You could do this. Uh-huh. It's definitely been far i don't know confusing because i've all had to figure it all out on my own which has been in some ways terrible and in other ways even more terrible (laughs) i'll go chronologically because i can think of like a couple of events in my life where it was like split paths Mm -hmm. um the other big one is when my parents moved from my parents moved from vancouver and i know that changed my life because my parents thought that they were going to raise my brother and I in Vancouver, and we ended up moving up to the Northwest Territories and then to Interior BC and then to Bella Bella. Mm-hmm. And those different locations have totally changed my life, mm-hmm. um, probably affected whether or not I got into certain exchange programs and things like that. I have no idea. Because as soon as they, as soon as they see on like your application that you're from a small town in BC, they're like, oh, representation. Yeah. So I feel like that might have given me a leg up on the game. Like, mm-hmm. Not saying that I'm not capable, but I think it helped like just to be... Like, full disclosure, I'm, like, yeah. the only person from piss-ass BC who is, like, applying for some of this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so another crux in my life was I was 15, and I went on the forum for Young Canadians. And mm-hmm. it was something that a couple of kids from my school got invited to. And it's a little shitty because there were, a, like, my hometown is pretty much entirely Indigenous. And it mm-hmm. was me, my friend who was also white. I'm Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And... Fair the other kid who was half white and then like two indigenous kids who went. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is a little sneaky. It's like, this is not representative of the population. This is not town. representative. Yeah. And the thing is though, I realized that the forum for young Canadians was doing this just to diversify their crowd because like all the little white kids were from big towns and big cities. They're mm-hmm. like from Vancouver or um, Winnipeg or, you know, on, on Calgary, different, Ontario. yeah, like Calgary, like all the big towns. Ontario's and then there city, was like Bella Bella, Mm-hmm. And there was like three Inuit kids that were from uh, just outside of Whitehorse. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And then there were like two other indigenous kids from a small town. And I'm like, you just went and you just cherry picked some kids. Yeah. Okay. That's a little weird. Um, so that was extremely transparent in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but not very many people are slick enough to notice that shit. So I ended up going on this thing and it was a week in Ottawa where we learned about the government and we learned about, we talked to little other fucking go-getters and I was very, I was on the younger side. Most people were like 16, 17. So I was like, I'm going to shut the fuck up the whole time. How old are you? I was 15. Okay. So they were like a year too older than me, but it was a, it felt like a big deal to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, like it, it was. It was, yeah. Candy, to, yeah. Like, and if it was like that big of an age gap now, I would feel comfortable staking out my space. But at the time, I was like, I don't want to be that annoying child. So I'm just going to shut the fuck up mm-hmm. and I'm going to listen. I'm going to learn. Mm-hmm. Which galaxy brain for Wise. a 15-year-old river. Because yeah. I was right. I was very stupid. The only thing that I did was I came up with a great name for our team, mm-hmm. which was uh, Tim Horton. Nice. <laughs> we had to do like a fake gay yeah. election with the name of a famous Canadian and I chose Tim Horton. <laughs> Wise. I thought that was very smart. Yes. That was the only thing I contributed. But the, so there's a career path out there where some parallel river got really into it. Like but this politics. river was like actually fuck politics. Like it was fucking terrible. 
I hated it. I had to wear a dress. I really hated it. Um, it was fucking minus 35 for like part of it. We were out and Ew. yeah, it was really nasty. We had to stand outside of Rudu Hall and I was wearing like a rain jacket because that's what I owned. I don't have a parka because I live in British Columbia and I was standing outside and it was minus 20 and my friend Jordan was standing next to me and he was wearing just like a white button up dress shirt mm-hmm. and like pants and his shoes like no and nothing but no coat oh, and fuck. we were like this fucking sucks and we were just standing there and it was terrible and then meanwhile the Inuit girls were standing there in their mucklucks and they were like good to go <laughs> they were fine <laughs> they were like oh it's a nice day yeah so <laughs> you were like I'm going to die and I'm going to be very angry and annoying while I do it yes yes um something that came of consequence indirectly of that was I ended up making friends with this girl Eva mm-hmm. and I don't remember how this all played out, but so there's so parallel path number one is I got into politics. Parallel mm-hmm. path parallel path number two was that this girl Eva and my one of my mom's friends had a daughter who went to the school called the United World Colleges. And if you've heard about it, you know that it's a big deal. If you haven't heard about it, then whatever. I haven't heard about um, it. Please tell me more. So it is a very, very big deal. It's mm-hmm. a really elite two year gap year program school. Okay. Um, there's one in Victoria that's based called Pearson. Um, they have, it's a really amazing school. There's only like 200 kids who go there. Oh, wow. And there's a bunch of them all over the world. There's one for Italy. There's one in Wales. I really wanted to go to the Wales one. Holy shit. Um, so, and it was really awesome. It was heavily scholarship based. Mm -hmm. So you would have to get a scholarship for, well, I would have to get a scholarship. I'm pretty broke. So I'm middle class. Yeah. And I applied the first time and I didn't get in. Mm. Whatever. I applied the second time, and out of the 300 applicants in British Columbia, I got into the top 18. Shit. Yeah. Congrats. And I was very, very close. I had a couple of hilarious moments in my interview because it was a day-long interview. They had, like, a bunch of different people, and went, we'd each be taken aside for, like, an hour to answer questions and stuff like that. And, and then everybody else... And yeah, and then everybody else would be doing, like, group activities and mm-hmm. shit like that and sort of being judged by the other people there, mm-hmm. by how smart we were. Mm-hmm. And I kept in touch with some of the other people. I was the last person in my group to hear back. Um, I didn't get in. Mm-hmm. And that's the parallel world. Got it. Where I almost got in. If I was richer, I, I my theory is that they were thinking about giving that the scholarship to either me or another girl, mm-hmm. and the other girl got it. Right. So that is my thinking because I was the last person out of my group to hear back. So right. I feel like they were really hemming and hawing over having me. Yeah. Um, I think the reason is is because I was a bit of a smart ass. Um, the t- the two clever things or oh, what was it? The two clever things that I said during my interview. One was they said, "Okay, so here's a hypothetical situation. If you're in a public debate mm-hmm. with Jack and Jill, sure. Um, and Jack keeps talking over Jill." What are you going to do? Tell Jack to shut up. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> that's pretty much exactly what I said verbatim. Hey. I said, call him out in front of the whole school. And they were like, you'd embarrass him in front of the whole school. And I got really serious. And I said, he would never do it again. <laughs> if you embarrass the shit out of somebody, they're never going to do it again. Yeah. And if you if you are clear to them and tell them exactly what's going on, you don't have to say it in a mean way. But if you're, like, very direct. if Okay. So I've seen mm-hmm. a couple of different emceed events. And as we all know, men are incredibly talkative, but they don't think they are. And there are several studies about it. It's incredibly interesting. Go ahead and look it up. I would encourage it very, very much. But I've seen several MC events where the men keep talking and talking and talking and talking. And the MC can do one of two things. They can either say, okay, well, let's let Mrs. So-and-so talk. 
and she does and then the guys are like oh yeah and then they go back and back and back and back and she and then the mc can be like well wait a second wait a second she was trying to blah 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 but the other thing the mc can do is like hey you've been speaking quite a bit i would like to hear so-and-so's thoughts please be quiet for a moment they're usually much more even killed from a much longer period of time for rather than like having 45 seconds for the women on the panel to talk they the woman is given space for like a whole 10 minutes and then at, and then at the 10 minutes you have to like stop them again because people get excited and i'm not saying it's necessarily an entirely like anyone's fault i don't think anyone's being malicious when they do it but they get very excited and like they're socialized in a lot of ways to say whatever they want for however long they want and so yeah i agree completely if somebody's like being spoken over talk to the person who's like the perpetrator and in the moment because if you wait till afterwards it's not going to do anything exactly (laughs) that was my logic yeah like and if you let them get too geared up like you have to just cut them off right at the way and say one moment you've been speaking quite a bit i'm going to shut you down for 10 Mm -hmm. minutes let's hear so and so Otherwise, like, they're not going to get the message. No. That was 16-year-old River Galaxy braining. No. Why? And, <laughs> and the- I think the other thing, though, is when you say that to men, specifically, like, men who have been on a lot of panels, they're like, that's not necessary. It's like, yeah, it fucking is. Have you watched these panels? It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, if you said it... Yeah, so I am of the exact same opinion. Yeah, I'm glad. Basically. It's nice to know that my opinion from... God, if I was 16, from five years ago, was validated. <laughs> The other one that I said um, was they said to me, so so you grew up in an indigenous community. And I was like, "Uh oh, here we go. And they Uh-oh, said, would you ever feel comfortable being like a spokesperson for indigenous people? And I said, no, no, uh, no, absolutely not. And they were like, what? Why? Kind of thing. And I was like, or rather, they just sort of said, why is that? Like, I think they might have been prompting it. I don't know if it was a trick question or not. Yeah. Um, and I said, because the last thing that indigenous people need is another well-meaning white person speaking over them. Right. In order to speak for people, you have to ask them to be quiet. Right. So I told my older sister, who is adopted, that, and she was who like... Who is indigenous. Who is indigenous. Yeah. And she was like, nice, <laughs> kind of thing. And my, my, my mom was so proud of me. Yeah. She was like, holy shit, good job, kid, <laughs> kind of thing. They almost got you there. And I was like, ah, no, they didn't. But yeah, so there's a parallel world where I was either less of a smart ass or a little bit richer. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I ended up going to Pearson College, yeah. which would have taken up my grade 12 year and mm-hmm. my first year of university. So mm-hmm. I would not have come to Emily Carr. Ah. Interesting. That's my really, really big one that, like, I was 100% in control of. Mm -hmm. And my mom still tells that story about, like, how I really, really wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And I, because she uses it as an example of you can try your absolute best. You can try twice even. And sometimes you're just, people are better than you. And that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. I guess my big divergent moment of my life was that in the middle of high school, I moved across the country. Like I said, from the Midwest to Seattle. And if you know anything about America, there are several different flavors of conservatism. And on a scale of one to 10, Midwest is probably a seven. If the deep South is like an 11. Indiana is of those. That's where Mike Pence, vice president, Trump crony, that's where he's from. So Indiana itself is probably eight and a half, nine, 10 in areas, rural, lots of corn, very conservative. Um, And then I moved from there to Seattle, which is, as we all know, very liberal, very cool. Mm -hmm. Rainbow crosswalks, the whole nine yards. In Indiana, it's legal for somebody to discriminate against LGBT couples who want to buy a cake for their wedding. Oh, that's the place where that happened. Yep, that was Mike Pence. Oh, my God. So the thing is that in Indiana, they had a really good arts program at the school where I was at. I'm incredibly lucky. My parents are very well off, and they chose where they lived both of the times that I remember moving primarily based on the school districts because there's like five of us kids. So 
like they knew that was a priority for them. And so when Westfield, the town in central Indiana, was like the best rated school system in Indiana, I believe, at least in the top 10. Wow. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And the art program there was good, but it wasn't one that really encouraged people to go out for art. Like, yeah, they had an AP class. They have the entire time I was there. I only knew one person who took a college level art course. Mm -hmm. She was incredibly good. Um, and the mentorship wasn't the same. You took classes based on topics rather than level. So in Washington, you would have a semester long class and it would be like level three basically. And you would do all sorts of different things. You'd do ceramics and painting and drawing and everything. But in Indiana you would have, and it was, was just the way the school district set it up. You would take this drawing level one class oh, and then you would, could take this painting level one class and then you could take the ceramics level one class. And so that would be like all of your art for like two years almost. Man. So I guess if I had stayed in Indiana, I was planning at that time, because I was a sophomore, I was starting to think a little bit about like colleges and what I would want to apply for. Um, I probably would have gone to an in-state school. Uh, specifically, I was looking at Ball State. If anyone, if anyone knows anything about Indiana, hit us up. Um, but <laughs> congratulations on getting out of Indiana. Holy hell. <laughs> Unless they're still there. Congratulations. Goodness gracious. <laughs> How do you do it? Anyway, I'm just not a fan of Indiana, and that's okay. You can be a fan. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if I had been, I was planning on being an architect. And I was... Really? Yeah, and I was specifically looking at landscape architecture. Hmm. And it was something that fascinated me. It was more STEM, so my dad probably would have been all over it. He's supportive of me either way, but like, it's just enough more STEM that he would have just jumped right on it. And... I just, it was creative and I, you know, I liked looking at the blueprints. So in the preliminary paths that I know about architecture, I liked it. Here's the thing though, of all of the careers in basically, I believe America and Canada, architecture is near the top for suicidality. Really? Yes. Because a lot of people have a passing knowledge of what architecture is. I, like at 12, I knew what an architect was. I didn't know what a system administrator was. I certainly didn't know what a system administrator specializing in web cloud security was. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of jobs out there that you don't know exist, but a lot of people know that architecture does exist. So a lot of people go for it. The thing is, it's a huge time commitment. There are so many things you have to know and the field is saturated. So if you go into architecture, the chances of you actually designing buildings for a living are slim to none. Wow. It's yeah. kind of like one of those professions like dentist or like one of those ones that everybody hears about. Exactly. Dentists it's, have a really high suicide rate too because yes. nobody enjoys going to the dentist. More so than doctors, yes. Because no one enjoys it. And the other theory is that they can't speak to their patients so they don't have any kind of ongoing emotional connection to them. Even because the patients they, are going like, ah. Exactly. Even if they have seen the same patient for like 12 years, they don't know anything about them really. So that's another facet. But yeah, architecture is... You just got to really like teeth. I guess. And some people do. You're weird, but we love you. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, so I, I was the, thinking about like orthodontics, like because I had braces for mm -hmm. three, almost four years. I had them in my first year of Emily Carr, woohoo! Mm -hmm. But like, I would go there and I'd be laying there with them fiddling around in my mouth, and I'm like, why did you do this? Why did you, like? I'm grateful that you did, 
but why have you chosen this profession? Yeah. <laughs> what are you What are you getting out of this person oh. who's reading through my teeth? <laughs> but the other thing about architecture, sorry, I'm just mm-hmm. on a tangent. But the other thing about architecture is that the market is so saturated for knowledgeable architects that the money is not any good. Really? Yeah. In dentistry, the money's pretty good because technically you're a doctor and you can have your own practice and everything. But in architecture, you get paid piss and shit, essentially, comparatively to what other, like, the education and the knowledge that you have to have. So, yeah, very, very glad that I missed that bullet. It was a bullet that I didn't even know was coming, but... God, um, see, I've known since I was, um, I'd say 14, like, Mm -hmm. I knew about Emily Carr, and I was thinking about going to it since that point. Like, I I make my decisions early, and Mm -hmm. then I make them successfully. Because I wanted to go to Japan since I was six years old, and ten years later, I did it. Woohoo! Nice. Um, So, good job, Baby River. But, um, so I knew that this school existed for a number of years before I came here. However, the other school that I applied to was Langara, which is not surprising, because a lot of people in this city go to Langara, and I kind of chose it as a backup plan, Mm -hmm. um, because it's pretty easy to get into Langara. But, shockingly, I did not apply to the Fine Arts Program. Do you know what program I applied for? Which? Journalism. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Because, jur- because M- um, Langara has a very strong journalism department. Mm-hmm. My mom thought that I would be an excellent journalist. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about journalism especially. I'm glad I'm not doing it because mm-hmm. it's a little like on the – something that I did learn is that on like there are a, co- a number of careers that have like a really high people high amount of people who have really low empathy or sometimes psychopathy um, or what was it? Not – it's a per- there's a technical name for the personality disorder that's uh, really low. Sociopathy, low sociopathy, maybe. Okay, um, that's but people have like a, but journalism is like number three. Awesome. I wonder why. I think it's a which is really strange. You wouldn't think it's an unempathetic career. No. Number one empathetic career, like empathetic, not unempathetic, mm-hmm. but number one empathetic career, I think, is nurses. That makes sense. Which makes total sense. Yeah. Um, I think the top like, um unempathetic careers are like businessman ceo journalism doctor and then like something in that kind of cold caliber um but yeah journalism is really high up on there for some reason um Mm. and the empathetic career are all the ones that are really interpersonal and artists and creative people are really high on the empathy and i would assume teachers and teachers yeah teachers um teachers caregivers all those things are really really high empathy people so very much like the stereotypically masculine versus feminine careers. Yeah. Which is interesting because it, there is at the moment. John Ronson wrote. I've read that in John Ronson's book, The Psychopath Test. So I bet I could probably find that again. But yeah, there's a large divide so, 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 mm, socially between careers that women are going into and careers that men are more interested in. Whatever the fuck women or man means. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing is that at the moment the thing it's very easy to automate careers that are low empathy such as manufacturing careers or design when it comes just waited way to just like slash like third of this building <laughs> but like things along those lines where it's easy to like open a computer program train somebody how to do it where it's not so much inter- human interactive design but design like design a screw that we need mm-hmm. that's something that's fairly easy to do with like a cad program yeah CAD program. but things like nursing caregiving and things that are more stereotypically feminine careers are very difficult to automate because you need to have what they call a certain level of soft skills and uh, at the moment there's actually a drought people they're partially because baby boomers are aging 
rapidly and they need a lot of care, which is fine. But there's at the moment not enough people in the labor pool who have that. And part of it is because young men don't want to be associated with those careers, even though a lot of the time it's very, it would be very good idea for somebody to, who is apparently male to go into that career because uh, oftentimes like there's no reason they wouldn't be good at it. And they have more of the like manually, just the lifting power that you would need as somebody who's a nurse who needs to move people around all day. And a lot of times you have people who would rather deal with a male nurse than a female one. But the other thing is that a lot of times there are a lot of ad campaigns that go after males and trying to get them interested in these careers. But a lot of times they're appealing to a masculine fantasy in that they're appealing Hmm. to like, you'll be such a badass if you become a nurse. But that's not what people need when they need a nurse. They need somebody who's empathetic and willing to listen and like who wants to care for you. They, so the fact that they're trying to attract more masculine men to this career would not be very good for it. It's not good for anybody in that situation. That's not, no. a, that's not the smart way to go about it. Yeah, um, so it's just the interesting thing that they're trying to appeal to people who want to be businessmen by trying to masculinize perhaps a more feminine career, which would then destroy that career. It's interesting. I, that This reminds me of a comic book that I'm in the process of reading and have been for about two years now. But sure. um, there's this, I read the first one mm-hmm. and it's called Why the Last Man. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm um, not. So the concept is that one day all of the men, quote unquote, on okay. earth disappear. Interesting. They just completely vanish. It reminds me of Woman World. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm familiar with that artist, but this one yeah. is a, by a different artist, okay. and the concept is that they just all just completely vanish, and it's just like overnight, except for one guy, and he's just the last man. Oh, and apparently the dudes in space that were orbiting the Earth. We don't know why. Um, but they're also gone. All but the astronauts also. The astronauts were still there, but it was just oh. people on the planet. Oh, okay. So, so there are like 10 men and nine of them are in space or whatever. Yeah. So okay. I read this book when I was in high school mm-hmm. and the one thing that really sticks with me is that they had an infographic at the back, which showed that they did, that the writer did some research mm-hmm. about which career, like what careers are left. Like 98% of the CEOs were gone. Yeah. 70% of the farmers, 97% of the firefighters, only about 10% of the nurses. Um, only yeah. about, uh, I think teaching was about 50-50. Like there was... Um, but it would all be higher level, like high school and up. Yeah. 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 And it was like a bunch of, it was a ton of these different infographics about mm-hmm. like the populations on earth that were disappeared. And the thing is though, like it was really interesting sort of watching how, because women world is just kind of more like a, this is a world, this is a world that just doesn't have men in it anymore and right. everything is still functional. Yes. But this is like... There's no men in the world. Some parts of the world are burning. Other parts of it are fine. <laughs> right. Well, the thing about woman world is it, it's more of a generational phase out of men. Men uh, went extinct rather than disappeared permanently in that when people gave birth, they no longer had male babies. So it was more of a phase out. So it makes sense that in woman world, people were able to fill in the gaps more organically. Yeah. Because it took like 50 years or something. So yeah. interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. It's I still find it kind of interesting that in Why the Last Man, they still chose to follow the story of one particular guy. Oh, there's yeah. Amory. Hi, Amory. Hi, Amory. Oh, there he goes. Um, Amory sighting in the wild. <laughs> Amory sighting in the wild. Hi, <laughs> ratting. <laughs> but 
it was kind of interesting that they still that it was why the last man instead of choosing to focus more on the world or on a woman in this world they chose to focus on one man who didn't get wiped out that is an inc- that's a pet peeve i have in most of media whenever there's a whenever there seems to be a story with a premise about which seems that it would impact women more they choose to follow a man for instance all of the movies i've ever seen about bees <laughs> the main characters are male. Where are we thinking about the B movie? I'm thinking about the me movie, but there are several others which I cannot name off the top of my head, mostly because the rip ups rip offs of the B movie. Oh, for instance, Bugs Life. Bugs which Life is about Antsy. Which is about ants, right. They should it be follows females. a man. Right. And like biologically that doesn't make any sense. So they had such a wonderful opportunity to have show female solidarity in a female-led matriarchal society which would be far more interesting from like a storytelling standpoint because that's just not the world we live in but instead they didn't and it makes me very sad because i like bees and also feminism so like makes me sad yeah thank you so yeah that's something i've noticed in several ways whenever they have an opportunity in in a female-led world where they could tell a female story instead they like latch on to the nearest man as if like our only like umbilical to reality is through this like dude yeah it's kind of odd that being seen as male is like seen as the quote-unquote amusing air quotes default right and i think that honestly really hindered me in coming to terms with my gender identity mm. was that being masculine was seen as the default mm-hmm. and i was like i don't feel like anything right and i realized that i would f- i thought i would feel like a man mm-hmm but instead I just didn't feel like a woman, but then mm-hmm. I didn't feel like being non-binary either. Right. And it was a very odd kind of feeling out the situation. Mm-hmm. And I still sometimes have doubts because I'm like, what if I'm just viewing myself as the, de- as quote unquote, the default as you've and been that, shown societally, as I've been yeah. shown societally, which of course is not how dysphoria works. No. Um, because if that was the case then I wouldn't have problems with my body and I right. wouldn't have being pro- problem, pro- wouldn't have problems being perceived as female. Yeah. It's just somewhere in my brain. I went, this is me. And me is default and default mm-hmm. is boy, whereas right. other people default is girl or right. something else. Yeah, and I can see how that would be incredibly, incredibly it, difficult. It was really hard to navigate that because I just didn't see myself as anything mm-hmm. for a really long time. Yeah. And then I became more and more uncomfortable being perceived as nothing. And I became uncomfortable being perceived as a woman mm-hmm. until I realized that I had to transition because yeah. I just was deeply unhappy. Yeah. And, you know, you got to chase those happy vibes, man. See, that's something I didn't, I didn't, ex- when you started talking about that, I didn't expect to connect to it but yeah i feel the same way in that i'm not particularly connected to being female i pass as female i present as female because mostly because i'm lazy (laughs) like i don't have any kind of dysphoria but i know that i'm not male but i'm also not like the hyper feminine like ideal of female or even the under hypo feminine ideal of female so i think hearing from what you've just said i think i am far more non-binary than i first than i ever expected yeah like interesting i've been sort of talking my partner through a lot of like gender vibes and i won't get too much into it here but it's been a lot of like you know what makes you feel good yeah and being non-binary is something that i just ended up not being able to do because Mm -hmm. i was happy to use they them pronouns for a while and i still use them for myself sometimes Mm -hmm. but then i just realized that like Unless I transitioned, I was always going to be seen as feminine, especially mm-hmm. because my voice was a very big giveaway at the time. It was something that gave me a ton of dysphoria. I was True. very uncomfortable with my voice. I was very uncomfortable with looking female. Yeah. And I realized that like the more I looked male, the more ha- the happier I was. Mm-hmm. If I could live in a perfect world where I would just snap my fingers and I could just be perceived as non-binary by everybody, there's a 
quite a good possibility that I would have just chosen to be non-binary and not transition mm-hmm. if I could just have everybody perceive me the way that I wanted to be perceived. Mm-hmm. But in reality, sort of my outward control of my controlling my um, appearance has been a really big part of my transition, yeah. which is not something that I expected to talk about in this podcast today. Especially not today. Um, that is definitely a sort of focal turning point in my life it was about six months ago when I started to transition mm-hmm. is realizing that I wasn't who I thought I was and like taking the steps to rectify that. Yeah. Especially cause like I wasn't a hundred percent positive that I needed this when I started tea. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, uh, I don't know, but now it's just like a part of my life and I'm like, yeah, this is what I need. Yeah. And yeah, I, that's very interesting. I'm definitely trying to examine my gender more. It takes so much effort. It more. Yeah, especially when I don't have any particular discomfort with how I feel or how I'm perceived. But I realize that that lack of discomfort also means that I have no discomfort in being perceived as more traditionally male either, which is something I never really thought would happen. But like the more that I dress more purposely androgynously and the less that I shop more traditionally femininely, I have like a... I have dresses and I don't mind wearing them. And sometimes you just want to wear high heels. But for the most part, if I could snap my fingers and just be perceived as a non-binary person, I wouldn't be at all upset by it. And if for like one freak week, I was always perceived as being male, I don't think it would upset me too terribly much. But I guess there's no way of knowing that. There's there's no way of knowing that True. until you do it. Um, it's like... The sort of way that I originally started experimenting with my gender was chasing mm-hmm. gender euphoria, mm-hmm. which was like, I discovered I really liked it when I bind my chest and mm-hmm. I really liked being referred to as river and I really liked they, them pronouns. Like yeah. those are the things that I latched onto. And as I kind of, un- as my doctor described it, like unpeeled the onion mm-hmm. and like, I was like, wow, this is actually way better than being called by my dead name. Wow. This yeah. is actually way better than this. Then I realized, oh, that means I'm actually uncomfortable being called this. Oh, it means I'm actually uncomfortable. Right. Cause like I thought about changing my name for many, many, many years because I do have a very feminine dead name. Yep. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, and I wouldn't sign my name as my name. I'd sign it with my initials. Uh-huh. And it's like all these little things that you can pick up on in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, just going like, oh, <laughs> turns out I wasn't actually all that comfortable. My right. fashion sense hasn't changed since before I started identifying as male. Uh-huh. But that just goes to show that I got dressed the same way for like five years. Right. I like, I dress like my dad. Mm-hmm. So, and I dress like my brother a little bit. Like mm-hmm. my brother and I both have like a uniform that we wear. Mm-hmm. His is like cargo pants and a, t- a graphic t-shirt and sneakers or hiking boots. And mine is Doc Martens and jeans and a graphic t-shirt and a flannel. So <laughs> that's like, or today it's a sweater. Mm-hmm. But I guess for me, if I were to examine it more carefully, I would examine what I was jealous of when I was younger especially in boys. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Yeah, because I have three brothers. Two are older than me. So for a long time, I was surrounded by just boys until I was six, my little sister was born. And I remembered recently that for a very long time, I was jealous of my brothers, specifically of the toys they had. And my parents were very generous and I had like all the toys any little girl could possibly want, but it wasn't everything that I wanted. I had a lot of stuffed animals. I didn't fuck with dolls. And... (laughs) I, as I was a little girl, I really liked like lacy pink things, but I was still very jealous of my brothers because they had a far wider variety of toys and they were very good at sharing. So it's not like I never was able to play with the things that I wanted, but they had trucks and plastic animals and plastic dinosaurs and toys and wooden train tracks. And they also had some stuffed animals, whereas I only had stuffed animals. And so I think, and like the other thing is that all the toys were kept in their room. So whenever Mm. I want to play with it, I would 
go into their room. And part of it was logistics. They had more storage space. But part of it was that technically all the toys that I liked most were theirs. And it's just one of those things where, like, the socialization of being female, I guess, just never really vibed with me. I'm, like, thinking about my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I never really played with dolls that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my, my parents were very much, like... Um, it was very interesting. My, my mom had a lot of thoughts on me being trans, as moms would often have. But what's been really interesting is one time we were driving, do-do-do-do-do, driving in the minivan, mm-hmm. and <laughs> we were talking back before it fucking broke down and nearly killed my dad, I guess. Fun. Um, but... We all have one of those stories. As it happens. As it happens. And we were driving, and we were talking, and my mom sort of said, like, you know, it was really interesting because in the 1990s, we were taught to raise children completely gender neutral. Mm-hmm. We were taught to give you both dolls and cars and anything you wanted because we because people believed that like um, gender was essential. Um, oh no, it was something odd. They no, oh. um, like that. It was- they believed that it was like that gender roles were socialized, but that gender was essential. It was yeah. kind of odd. Like they were like, we didn't want to push any kind of gender roles onto you kids, but at the same time, your brother always went for the cars and that was something that you, that was just something that he did. They had and, done an interesting study where they had a mixed, a mixed group of um, adolescent monkeys. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you could find this study somewhere. I don't remember what it's called. I apologize. But Basically, they presented uh, this mixed group of monkeys of both boys and girls with a mixed group of toys. Um, They had cars, they had dolls, and then they had some traditionally gender-neutral toys, such as, like, balls and a couple of other things. But they had a mixed group of both. And they wanted to see, like, how specifically they would uh, be gravitated towards those different toys. And for some reason, there was some it did go pretty much the way they expected. The female monkeys were more attracted to the softer adolescent type girly toys. And the boy monkeys were more likely to pick up things like tar- the trucks and cars. It was strange. That's very odd. But it was like, very odd. And then what it ended up coming down to is like, as my brother and I grew up, because uh, mm-hmm. I was kind of attracted mostly to the dolls and sometimes the stuffed animals. But what really got, really got my gears going mm-hmm. was the costume box. Yeah. The costume box really got me going. Yeah. I had hold, up until I was 12 years old, I'd hold my friends at gunpoint, basically, and make them play pretend with me. Yeah. Until I started learning how to write and draw. Yeah, that was had, one. <laughs> we had a big, like, bucket of <laughs> Halloween costumes, and my mom would make Halloween costumes. She's an oh, excellent yeah. seamstress. Super cool. But we would get it out in, like, the middle of September. And we would just, like, when we got home from school, we would, like, get home and wear costumes around the house. It was great. Like, yeah. Lions and princesses and sorts of dumb shit it was my, awesome my mom told me that like the first toy that i ever played with was magnet doodle um which is like the magnet doodler and i always went for the drawing stuff i always went for that i always went for that like if mm-hmm. you ever gave the the best way to entertain me was drawing materials yeah. even when i was like a little baby i think my mom has some old sheet music somewhere that has like my two-year-old doodles on it yeah yeah so that was like the number one thing but my mm-hmm. brother meanwhile he so and you know here i am i'm an artist i'm making comic books i've been comics like forever basically like my parents found a comic book that I made when I was like three. <laughs> yeah, very cute. And my brother, meanwhile, is he's not an engineer, mm-hmm. but what he would do is, um, especially when he was like in um, later elementary, middle school, he would make contraptions. It was very, very odd, but what he would do is he would combine Hot Wheels with the cars, with marble works, with blocks, and connect some Lego. 
and his room would turn into a jungle of this weird mechanic stuff. And he'd be like, hey, 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 check this out. And he'd drop the marble, and the marble would jump off the ramp, and it would hit the car, and the car would go and knock oh, over the like blocks. Rube and Goldberg. Yeah, yeah, very, very Rube Goldberg. Cool. Goldberg. And that's what, very mousetrap. And that's exactly what he would do. Mm-hmm. And now his big thing is he got accepted into game design program. Nice. So it makes complete sense. It's amazing how far back things go, like how deep the roots are. Yeah, like yeah. he's always been like about building things and breaking them down. And he's been a little bit of a perfectionist, which kind of makes sense for his career. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, I've been so not a perfectionist. And I would like play with, I'd play with dolls, but to make them tell stories. Mm-hmm. And I'd like read, read a ton of books, obviously. And yeah. I would draw a lot and I'd make my friends play pretend with me. My parents found like a tape that my best friend and Sawyer and I made. And it was of us, I haven't seen the tape yet, but mm-hmm. apparently we were playing in the old culvert and I had like a camera and we were pretending to be detectives and I was engineering this whole situation and making this really complex plot and my brother was out to antagonize me and my friend was just kind of following me along and like trying to keep up with me as I rambled. Um, so I think that's very telling to like how I grew up, which is so yeah. weird, like how, when you think about how far back some yeah. aspects of your personality go. Yeah, it's, a, it's strange. It's strange. It's... So... That was identity theft for today. That was identity theft. I think that was. A, I think we ended on a really good note. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think we can wrap it up. What are we? What's what are one? we gonna talk? I would like to share some of my experiences of being drunk. I have not. I did not drink until the start of September of this year. So it's been a whole thirty-three days since <laughs> I've decided that alcohol will not kill me, and so my tolerance, of course, is shit, <laughs> which is amazing to. I'm sure behold, but also to experience. And as it happens, I think the main thing, the big takeaway is that there's alcohol that tastes like chocolate and I weirdly (laughs) love it, which makes sense. That sounds like a liqueur. Probably. I don't know what it was. It was a random shot. I loved it though. So takeaway for today, my story, if you want to drink, be smart, but also find that chocolate whatnot because it's so delicious. I think I'm gonna try and get you to try that Bailey's and Kahlua one because it's basically like hot chocolate that Bitch. tastes like booze. Yes. <laughs> yeah, ba- I think if you really like that, you'd like Bailey's. Um, you put Bailey's in coffee or mm-hmm. Bailey's in hot chocolate and it's like really boozy. Ooh. I don't love it because it tastes like kind of like marshmallows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't adore marshmallows on the, a good day, mm-hmm. but it is a very, very sweet chocolatey drink. I think you might get a kick out of that. So, so I think the main takeaway here is that I don't like alcohol. I like sugar. Yeah, that might be it. Um, Meanwhile, I'm like, if it's got fruit in it, I'm down. I'm ready. My body is ready. That like that um, drink that I had Storm Crow last night. The last one was ooh, it was very good. It had four ounces in it, so I was definitely I wasn't staggering on the way home. But but and by the time I got home, I was still quite drunk. (laughs) Same. I wasn't staggering either. By when I was actually walking to the bus, I felt sober. But when I got home, I was very very chatty with my roommate. So if any, if any of you guys have anything, any cheap alcohol options that you think I, a mere virgin, ought to try, uh, feel free to email them to identitytheftpodcast at gmail.com. I am looking forward to any suggestions. Looking forward to any suggestions or I guess alcohol stories. We should Ooh, we'll keep yes. our, yeah, any kind of drinking stories are always incredibly funny to us. Maybe one of these days we can do a bonus episode where we take a shitty microphone home and make some shitty cocktails and rate them. That sounds great. If I love you want just that, like let us know. I love just like orange juice and vodka. It is the simplest shit. I, like I have a bottle of really good 
back blackberry wine, but I got it home and it has a cork in it. I don't have a corkscrew. <laughs> oh, my one of my roommates tends bar. I can get you a corkscrew. Oh, that'd be beautiful. Excellent. Well, right. thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll see you all again next week. And we have some exciting news. We're starting to get our identity theft archive up online. And I'll tell you more about that. You can follow us at Happy Panic Collective on Instagram if you want more updates. Mm-hmm. My same. Instagram is also trans.figured at Instagram. Mine is w.illo.w. So it's Willow, but with extra steps. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, my name is River. And I'm Sabrina. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Yeah.